0: So uh, for today's reading, I decided I'd switch tactics from what I was uh, originally going to do. And uh originally thought of maybe doing some uh, readings on Kama, uh, uh, as I was starting out with yesterday. And uh, there's some really good stuff out there. But as I uh, was reading through it, I just thought, oh, gosh. You know, it's pretty. <laughs> pretty uh, conceptual, heady kinds of things, at least what I wanted to read, um, and uh, very uh, conducive to uh, being uh, in the nature of like postprandial, soporific quality. (laughs) Um, And so I I thought, well, I could do something that's very intellectually stimulating uh, and very useful, or I could do something that's more gladdening of the mind, uh, warm and fuzzy kind of thing. So, so I opted for warm and fuzzy this afternoon. And uh, maybe just to, even though some of it is maybe a bit on the one would say you know a little more basic level, um, some, there's a, 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 some really nice vignettes in, in here that uh, just watching what it does to uplift the, the heart, or open, the, open the heart for an afternoon of meditation. And it's a a book, a very small booklet called Daughters and Sons by Ajahn Jayasaro. And uh, it's just recounting um, some of his uh, experiences, particularly related to the uh, mundane right view of there is mother, there is father. So I thought, okay, well, having just mentioned that aspect yesterday briefly, I'll read some reflections from Ajahn Jayasaro on that may not get through the whole thing it's a bit lengthy for a half an hour so i may just uh, leave it partially read and if people want to finish it they can as well many years before i was ordained many years before i was ordained as a monk i believed that wisdom came from experience so i left my home country of england for india roaming around and gathering life experience in europe and asia The more difficult it was, the more I liked it, because I felt that difficulties helped me to know myself better, and that was beneficial to my life. But the overland trip to India was a little disappointing. It was not as challenging as I expected, and so on the way back, I resolved to travel from Pakistan to England without any money. I wondered if it would be possible to hitchhike all the way back, and I also wanted to know how it would feel to have nothing at all. It was quite an adventure. Several occasions I will never forget. I would like to tell you about one of them. By the time I arrived in Tehran, the capital city of Iran, I was exhausted. I was as thin as a stick. My clothes were all dirty and crumpled. And I must have looked pretty awful. I was shocked when I saw myself in the mirror of a public restroom. As for my mind, it was more and more like that of a hungry ghost constantly worrying about food. Will I get anything to eat today or not? Whether my stomach would be empty or full depended on the kindness of fellow human beings. I had to rely on my parami because there was nothing else to rely on. And then I met an Iranian man who felt sorry for me and also saw a chance to practice his English. He treated me to a cup of tea and gave me a small amount of money. At night, I slept on the street, hidden in a small, quiet alley. I was afraid that police would beat me up if, I, if they found me. In the morning, I walked to a soup shop that I remembered served free bread. While I was walking along the street, trying not to look at the tempting restaurants in the corner of my eyes and not to smell the aroma that lingered in the air, I noticed a woman walking toward me. She looked stunned when she saw me. She stopped in her tracks, stared for a moment, and then walked up to me with a scowl on her face. Using sign language, she told me to follow her. And being a seeker of experience, I did. After walking for about 10 minutes, we reached a townhouse and rode an elevator to the fourth floor. I assumed we were going to her apartment, but she still had not said a single word. No friendly smile, just a fierce face. Once the door was opened, I saw that it was indeed her apartment. She took me to the kitchen and pointed to a chair, signaling me to sit down. Then she brought me many kinds of food. I felt as if I was in heaven. It made me realize that the most delicious food in the world is the food you eat when you're truly hungry and your stomach is growling. The woman called out to her son and said something to him which I couldn't understand but I noticed that he was around my age. The son came back after a while with a pair of pants and a shirt. When she saw that I'd finished eating, the woman pointed to the bathroom and signaled me to bathe and change into the new clothes. I guess she planned to burn my old ones. She didn't smile at all and said nothing and made herself understood with sign language. While bathing, I thought that maybe this lady saw in me her own son and was thinking, what if my son traveled to a foreign country and had a hard time like this? What if he was in such a pitiful situation? What would that be like? I thought that she must have helped me with a mother's love. I decided to appoint her my, quote, honorary Persian mother and smiled to myself alone in that bathroom. When I was ready, the woman took me back to the spot where we met and left me there. She merged back into the stream of people who were walking to work. I stood there watching her disappear into the crowd, and deep inside knew that I would never forget her in my entire life. I was very moved, and my eyes were teary. She gave so much to me, even though we didn't know each other at all. I was as skinny as a dried corpse, my clothes were dirty and smelly, and my hair was long and messy. But she didn't mind that at all. She even took me into her house, and took as good, of care, good care of me as if I were her own son, without, accept, without expectation of anything at all in return, not even a word of thanks. It has been over 20 years now, and I would like to publicly extol the virtue of this sulky-faced bodhisattva so that everyone will know that even in a big city, there are still good people, and there may be more good people than we think. This woman was not the only good-hearted person I met. I received kindness and help from people in many countries while I was traveling and collecting life experience, even though I did not ask anyone for anything. It made me determine in my mind that in future, if I was in a position to help others in the same kind of way, I would. I wanted to help to sustain the spirit of human kindness in the world. Society can seem a hard and heartless place sometimes, but I thought we can each try to be at least a small oasis in the desert. I didn't get all the way back to England. I lost my passport near the Turkish border and returned to Tehran, where I made friends and got a job teaching English. After a few months, with some money in my pocket, I returned to India. My 19th birthday found me living by the side of a lake with a Hindu monk. He was an inspiring teacher whose practices were similar to Buddhism, and he taught me many things. While I stayed with him, I had plenty of time to contemplate my life. In the afternoon, I liked to climb up a nearby mountain, sit under an old tree, and enjoy the breeze. Looking down to the lake below and the desert that expanded all the way to the horizon allowed me to think clearly. One day, my mind became full of questions. Why was it that, whereas I was so impressed every time I remembered the kindness of the people who had helped me during my journey, those who gave me food or shelter for a night or two, I'd never felt the same way about the kindness of my parents. They'd looked after me for 18 years, given me food every single day, three or four times a day, and they'd still worried that the food might not be delicious enough for me. They'd given me both clothes and shelter, They'd taken me to a doctor when I was sick. And when I was ill, they'd seemed to suffer more than I did. Why was I never impressed with that? I suddenly felt that I'd been shamefully unjust. I realized how much I'd taken them for granted. At that moment, it was as if a dam burst. Many examples of my parents' boon kun, their generosity and kindness, came to my mind, so overwhelming, so impressive. That was the beginning of my gratitude toward my parents. I continued to imagine how difficult it must have been for my mother when she was pregnant. At the beginning, she must have had morning sickness. And later on, it would have been difficult for her to walk. All kinds of movement must have been cumbersome and painful. But she accepted the suffering because she believed that there was something worthwhile in it and that something was me. When I was young, I had to depend on my parents for everything. But why did I feel indifferent, as if it was their duty to give and my right to receive? After a while, I realized that I gained the opportunity to practice Buddhism in order to develop a true inner refuge, because my parents had provided me with a stable, dependable, external refuge when I was young. They'd given me a strong foundation for my heart to take on the battle with the defilements. When I was 20 years old, I traveled to Thailand to be ordained as a Buddhist monk. My parents made no objections because they wanted their son to live his life the way he wanted and to be happy. My parents chose this over their own hopes for me. Last year, my mother confessed to me that the day I left home was the saddest day of her life. I was very moved by this. What impressed me the most was the fact that she had been very patient and concealed this suffering from me for 20 years because she didn't want me to feel bad about it. After I became a monk, sometimes I couldn't help reproaching myself. While I lived with my parents, every day I'd had the opportunity to do things for them in return for their love, and hardly ever did so. Now I had the desire to express my sense of gratitude in tangible ways, but could not. I was a monk and lived thousands of miles away from them. What a pity. And yet I could do what monks have done for over 2,000 years and send them thoughts of loving kindness every day. In Thailand, we re- regularly refer to the boon kun of parents. There is no exact equivalent to this concept of boon kun in English, because, but we may explain it to mean the belief that whenever we receive kindness or assistance from anyone, especially when it is given freely, we incur certain obligations. A good person is one who honors those obligations, and the deepest of those obligations is to our parents. The Buddha taught us to develop both a deep appreciation of the debt of gratitude we owe to our parents and the intention to repay it as best we can. This is not a value that I was brought up with. In Western cultures, there is, of course, love and attachment between parents and children. But generally speaking, the sense of mutual obligation is much weaker. Values such as independence and individual freedom are given more weight. A special profound bond between parents and children may be felt by many, but it is not articulated as a moral standard that upholds the society, as it is in Buddhist cultures like Thailand. The importance we give to the kun of parents may be traced to the Buddhist teachings on mundane right view, the basis for understanding what's what in our lives. In the Pali texts, the Buddha says that we should believe that our father is real, and our mother is real. Are you confused as you read this? Why did the Buddha think he had to tell us that? Isn't it obvious? Who doesn't know that we've been born into this world because we, have truly, because we have truly existing parents? The thing to understand here is that these words are idiomatic. What the Buddha is saying is that we need to believe that there is a special significance in the relationship between parents and children, a significance that we should acknowledge and honor. The relationship between parents and children is mysterious and profound. The Buddha teaches us that there is no heavier kama than to, than to kill one's mother or father. In Pali, it is called anantariya karma, kama, kama is so heinous that its terrible results cannot be avoided, no matter how sincere the perpetrator's regret might be. So whereas Angulimala could become an arahant despite having killed 999 people, it would have been impossible if he had killed just one person, if that one person had been either his mother or his father. The Buddha did not teach the profundity of this relationship merely as a skillful means to promote family family values. It is a timeless truth that he discovered and then revealed for the benefit of the human race. It is an important Buddhist principle that the relationship between our parents and us is deep and profound, and probably has been going on for many lifetimes. Hence, we should accept, respect, and care about this relationship. We might say, in summary, that in this lifetime, we are resuming unfinished business with our parents. In some cases, this unresolved state of affairs may manifest in a bad way such as when a baby is abandoned by its parents, or a child is physically or sexually abused by a parent. There are such cases, and there seem to be more every day. But the terrible things that some parents can do to their children do not disprove this special relationship. The present lifetime is just one scene of a long drama, and we do not know what has happened in the past. As a caring society, we should, of course, do everything we can to protect children from abuse, to make clear how unacceptable we find it, and to deal with guilty parents according to the law of the land. But at the same time, we may protect our minds from anger and despair by reminding ourselves that we are seeing one small segment of a complex saga, largely hidden from our eyes. Considering this truth, perhaps victims of abuse, may be able to find their way to forgiveness for all involved. Fortunately, there are very few parents who are completely evil to their children. Most are, as the texts say, like Brahma gods towards them, motivated by unwavering love, compassion, and sympathetic joy. In a number of discourses, the Buddha teaches us how to return our parents' profound beneficence. One of the best known is the teaching called The Six Directions, which the Buddha taught to a young man named Sigalika. A part of this teaching states that, in five ways, young householder, a child should minister his parents as the East, saying to himself, one, having been supported by them, I will support them in my turn. Two, I will help them with their work. Three. I will keep up the honor and the traditions of my family. Four, I will make myself worthy of my heritage. Five, I will make offerings dedicating merit to them after death. The teachings in this discourse reflect the ideal structure of a Buddhist society. The emphasis is on people's responsibilities towards one another, on duties rather than rights. Nowadays, it is heartening to reflect on how many people in Thailand try to practice according to the principles above. But there is another discourse that I would like to refer to here, one that is less well-known and less practiced. In this discourse, the Buddha said that even if a child were to put his or her mother on one shoulder and the father on the other shoulder, carry them around for 100 years, provide them with well-prepared food that they enjoy, bathe and massage them, Allow them to excrete and urinate on their shoulder or give them huge sums of money. Provide them with a high standing and powerful position. Even if the child does all this for their parents, he or she will still be unable to adequately repay them for all they have done for their child. However, if the parents have little or no faith in the Dhamma and if a child can help to arouse the parent's faith or if the parents do not practice the five precepts, or practice them inconsistently. And if a child can help improve the parent's moral conduct, or if, a child can help, or if a child can make stingy parents delight in giving and helping others, or help parents develop the wisdom to overcome mental defilements and end suffering, the child who succeeds in these tasks can be said to have truly repaid the debt of gratitude that he owes to his parents. There are many points to ponder in this discourse. I believe the Buddha taught it tongue-in-cheek. If you don't think so, just try to picture yourself eating your parents while they sit on your shoulders. No need to think about a 100 years. You probably wouldn't be able to take their weight for five minutes. Some mothers, I'm thinking of my own here, wouldn't want to get up there in the first place in case they fell down on broke broken arm or leg. I think the Buddha used such a hyperbole because he wanted us to reflect that, Wow, even if I was to do unbelievable things like that, it wouldn't be enough, let alone what I do for them now. He wanted us to see that this is a huge debt, and no matter how hard we look after our parents in the normal ways, it is, as, it is, it is only as if we were paying back the interest on the debt. When we are in debt, the owner of the debt is not interested in how much we have paid off in the past, but how much remains to be paid in the future." Similarly, in considering our debt to our parents, rather than remembering all the things that we've done already, we should think about what remains, what we haven't done yet. The debt we owe to our parents is not an ordinary debt. It is a sacred obligation. The Buddha teaches us that besides serving our parents as laid down in the six directions, a Buddhist should try to encourage his parents in all that is good. The child should seek to become a kalyanamitta, or good friend, to his parents. Here we may see more clearly that the idea of a Buddhist society is of one where people try to be good friends to one another. Parents should try to be good friends to their children, and children should try to be good friends to their parents. An older sibling should, be try, should try to be a good friend to a younger one, and a younger sibling should try to be a good friend to an older sibling. A husband should try to be a good friend to his wife, and a wife should try to be a good friend to her husband. We should help each other in the task of reducing the negative emotions in our hearts and working together to create a life and a society based upon loving-kindness, compassion, and wisdom. In the discourse I mentioned above, the Buddha singled out four virtues. I would like to repeat them now and expand upon their meaning. Sadha, faith is the belief that the Buddha is a perfectly enlightened being, that his teachings are true, and that the Buddha's teachings will result in liberation for those who practice them seriously. It is the belief that there are people who have practiced the Buddha's teachings well and become liberated by them. It is the belief that all of the beings in the universe, this group of noble li- liberated beings, is the most worthy of respect. It is the belief that as human beings, we control our own fate. Whether things will be good or bad, whether we experience happiness or suffering, is up to us. Our lives do not depend on any spirit, ghost, angel, god, or divine power, but depend on our own actions of body, speech, and mind, both in the past and, most importantly, in the present. Sadha means, in essence, faith in our potential for enlightenment, And the conviction that the most important thing a human should get from his or her life is freedom from suffering and its causes. Sila, virtue or precepts, is the beauty and nobility of conduct. It refers to the ability to refrain from saying or doing anything that harms oneself or others. Sila is liberation from bad kama created through body and speech. Sila is stable when protected by an intelligent sense of shame with regard to unwholesome states, uh, with regard to unwholesome actions, hiri, and and an intelligent fear of the consequences of such actions, otapa. Sila provides the necessary moral standard for those who are determined to grow in the Dhamma. Chaga, generosity, renunciation, refers to detachment from material things delight in generosity, charity, and helping others. People with chaga are kind and caring, not stingy or self-aggrandizing. Panya, wisdom, is the kind of knowing that extinguishes suffering and and the defilements that cause it. Human beings are vulnerable to suffering at all times, even though nobody wants to suffer even the slightest amount. We suffer because we do not understand how suffering arises and how it ceases. Why don't we understand? Because we don't understand ourselves, and we are not trying to understand as much as we could. As long as we don't understand ourselves, we will always be a victim to our emotions. It is like being in a dark room with a cobra. Would it be possible to walk around in such a room without being bitten by the cobra? It would be hard enough to avoid bumping into the furniture. Panya, in the initial stage, works on the level of perception. It is a function of the memories that we accumulate from hearing, listening, and reading the Dhamma. We condition our emotions, both good and bad, with perception and ideation. Those who listen to and remember the Dhamma can reflect on it until they understand, and then they can cultivate the path of skillful consideration. Having trained in this way, then when the mind falls into an unwholesome state, it does not become completely overwhelmed. It doesn't fall into a rut. It quickly rights itself. When someone who has never studied the Dhamma is treated badly, for example, he will usually become angry and depressed. But one who has studied the Dhamma may bring to mind the reflection But even the Buddha himself was the subject of abuse and denigration, and so why should he be exempt from it? This thought can lead to an acceptance of the situation. By recollecting wise reflections, we can start to let go of negative emotions and start to wean ourselves away from the refuge of alcohol and pills. This level of panya discriminates between good and bad, the beneficial and the harmful. It gives us a peaceful and realistic vision of our life and the world. But it is not an infallible refuge, especially when strong emotions have arisen. A higher level of panya is the wisdom that provides knowledge and understanding in the mind of those who have pure sila and stable samadhi. At this level, wisdom is no longer a thought. It is much faster than thoughts, like a supersonic airplane flying faster than sound. Wisdom is to clearly see all things as they are, to the point that we no longer enjoy attaching to them as me or mine. This is the wisdom that utterly penetrates the truth, that everything, including our thoughts and feelings, belongs to nature and has no owner. It is the wisdom to realize that our life is not a fort in a barren land, but it is a river that flows calmly through the garden of the world. When we develop the wisdom to see this, we can let go. The Buddha taught that encouraging faith, virtuous conduct, generosity, and wisdom in one's parents' hearts is the highest service to them. But he did not overlook the more basic kinds of service. He taught that a good child should take care of their parents. Taking care of parents starts with material items, but does not end there. Giving material gifts or providing comfort is a symbol of love, but it is is not a proof of love and certainly shouldn't be a substitute for it. The discourse I quoted above tells us that the greatest factor conditioning the happiness and suffering in our lives are thoughts and emotions, or in other words, the mind itself. It is for this reason that the Buddha says that it is a great merit for those who can help their parents to develop wholesome qualities and experience happy, joyous mental states. It is a kind of giving that enables our parents to gain a precious gift, It is good and feels good to give material gifts to our parents and to give them treats, to take them out for meals or to take them on holiday, for example. But these kinds of gifts are always somewhat limited. Material things, in particular, can break down and fall apart and can even be a cause of such anxiety for the elderly that they become a double-edged sword. The support and care given to parents can only help them in this lifetime. The Buddha said that in addition to these praiseworthy ways of showing our love and gratitude to our parents, we should not overlook their spiritual welfare. Good qualities that arise in the hearts of our parents have no drawbacks. They're not dependent on external conditions. Nobody can steal them. And they provide provisions for the next life. To summarize the Buddhist principles regarding how we honor the debt of kindness we owe to our parents depends on our beliefs that one, continual rebirth is painful, suffering, and freedom from the cycle of rebirth is true happiness. Two, rebirth is conditioned by defilements, kilesa. Three, humans can let go of defilements, and they should do so. Four, letting go of defilements and cultivating good qualities is the practice leading to true happiness. The question is, how can we encourage our parents to cultivate sada, sila, chaga, and panya, as the Buddhist suggests? We should be prepared for some disappointment. We may not be able to do it all or achieve only partial results. Our young branch is relatively difficult to bend. Why should their old branch be easy? Don't be irritated or frustrated by your parents, and don't give up on them, or else your mind will become clouded and negative It's normal for people to resist change. So act wisely, but without expectations. Do it because it is the correct thing for a son or daughter to do. But don't allow yourself to suffer through your goodness. It's very important to set a good example. As the old saying has it, actions speak louder than words. And the best method of persuasion may not be through speech. If we let our parents see the benefits we gain from practicing the Dhamma, if they see within us qualities of generosity, serenity, loving kindness, circumspection, and persistence, then it may give them the faith and motivation to practice themselves. Simply put, if we want to help our parents, we also, at the same time, have to help ourselves. OK, I think I'll uh, pause there or stop there um, just after two there's more um, that I could read, but we'll just maybe take a moment to see if there's any comments or questions.
1: Um, I was curious on that, kind of, on that last point if uh, maybe any, anyone up there had any idea on like good resources as far as introducing just the basics of, of meta-practice. To someone, uh, I've thought that maybe it might end up being helpful for uh, my father, my mother, both of them, to start engaging with that. But I don't quite know the, the best way to like point them in the direction of something that might help them get started with just a very basic meta practice.
0: Thanks. Just uh, one quick thing, and I think look, look, looks like Luan Paul might have some ideas too. But uh, um, I think <laughs> you looked like you did. <laughs> Um, the one thing that uh, just popped into my mind because I had just pulled it off the shelf of the library yesterday, I haven't reread it. It's a book I've read a couple of times. Very, very good book, uh, but again by Ajahn Jayasaro, called "On Love," um, and it kind of, if I remember right, it kind of goes through all the different ways that we use that word and, and what it means, all the way from the, you know, uh, the very simple kind of love, like I love ice cream um to you know, uh, romantic love or sexuality, or you know, love of family, siblings, mother, father, those kinds of forms of love, and then moving towards the uh, Brahma vihara of love that's, you know without qualification, without attachment, you know, without conditions. Uh, and he moves through that in a very nice progressive way that kind of steers one towards, Looking at it in a very broad, non-personal sense. So that's just one thought that popped into my mind. You? You
2: no, know, that's the only thing that's you know in terms, of <coughs> especially introducing to parents who are <coughs> maybe not not uh, so versed, and just sort of giving the fundamentals in a in a what do you say a user-friendly way. Uh, that's a that's a really good. Uh, a really good uh, resource. I um, Can't really think of, uh, of of anything else off the top of my head. I mean, of course, there's tons of resources, but but it's sort of you know it's it's like you know sometimes if it gets too too complicated or too. uh, uh um, too too dense. Um, you, you you turn them off before before they even get started.
1: <laughs> I I think on a conceptual level they're more than open to it, uh, but my father's eighty two and has some struggles to read because he had a stroke and and so like mm. finding stuff that's really basic and simple that like they could go through together that uh, that doesn't take a whole lot of like. You know, sort of upkeep or much there to just sort of start like just a very basic practice.
2: I mean, um, again, that's a that's a really good start, but that's a good start, and it could be read out. Um, also, like Ajahn Sona has whole series of oh, right. of uh, teachings that he's that he's given, uh, like on all sorts of different topics and. And I know that there was a meta retreat um, that he that he gave, and so that that's a, uh, that's probably a really good resource. He's a he's a good uh, uh, explainer of of, of, of He's a good speaker, good, very articulate, without getting yeah overly complicated.
0: I think Archinenko, didn't you do that re- readings last winter retreat?
2: Bloom. Oh, Bloom, is, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. had yeah. just happened that I was on that retreat. Oh. That was in 2014. Yeah, so, and so. that one is actually, that is actually available in audio as well. Classy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, resource.
3: Thank you. Because that, in that one, it's more the, uh, and Ajahnashalwa actually talks about it in his latest journal. The, uh, it's actually um, that whole interplay between, say, the, the Buddha's heroic striving and then Lady Sujata's meal offering to him so that even in the most, the most epic, heroic, manly struggle, needed to be, he needed to be nourished with tenderness and uh, nutriment in order to make that final breakthrough to liberation. So there's that that kind of
0: balance. Yeah, that last comment that Ajahn just made just kind of I think you know sums up a lot of the important aspect of the teaching that sometimes we uh, neglect in some ways because you know we're such a uh, conceptually intellectually oriented culture, uh, and even in our Dhamma practice, I think we sometimes get you know, really hooked on, you know, the intricacies of the teaching uh, and trying to understand them, in quotes, uh, but that that understanding is really, penetrates at a level of the heart that's, you know, much deeper than concept. And it's not that concept isn't useful or or important uh, in learning some of the fundamentals of the teaching, but we just use the intellect and that, Reasoning power as a as a way to raise the proper questions that draw us in, or the raise the re- proper reflections that draw us into that deeper affective level, which is where liberation can be experienced.
3: What, if anything, is said about what c- one can do for one's parents who have been long gone, um, mm. other than? Practice, dedication, like, is there something specific said about that, anywhere?
0: Paul, you want to mark on some merit-making? Well,
2: I mean, mean, you've been here for a while, so you probably start seeing the, uh, like, dedications of blessings, and and which is something that, you know, one is uh, on special occasions, making offerings, dedicating, but then in one's own practice, Um, just to be uh, spending a bit of time to dedicate blessings and dedicating, dedicating the uh, goodness of one's practice, Um, you know, through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides, my mother, my father. (laughs) Um,
3: Slightly tangential, but I'm curious about uh, um showing gratitude and um
0: i guess, i guess he did re- say it about siblings but i just wanted to ask if more of the teachings around showing love and support to siblings I know it's a different relationship but mm. yeah. i'm not aware of any major specific references as much as there are say with gratitude towards parents but yeah, as you said, he did. He did remark on that, and you know, there's still a strong comic connection uh, among siblings, and and uh, yeah, I think that same kind of attitude of being willing to be there, being willing to help in, in times of difficulty, especially, but in other times as well, uh, is is uh, is a is a very meritorious kind of a thing, uh, honoring those. Close connections. You know, we've gone through pretty many, probably pretty many rounds of existences with them uh, in different relationships. And um, to, to honor that uh, connection in some way, in his most helpful way, setting an example uh, in the same way, and just being there. I could personally testify to the um, uh, reward of that. In particularly, say with uh, my brother, who just went through some difficult times a couple of years ago, and you know, we there had been some distance between us, although we had been close in different ways. But uh, and uh, I was able to kind of help him out uh, in some ways that uh, really uh, turned our relationship into a a very, very, uh, very good thing. Uh, And so, just keeping open to those mm. possibilities. Thank you. Anybody else, Ajahn, Yannicko, or Limpa, if you know of any other references in the teachings to siblings?
3: The only thing that comes up with siblings is like that they all they always fight for us by each other. <laughs> <laughs> it was more of the cultivation of Nibida. <laughs> That they're always fighting, <laughs> but that also, also parents like mother with child, child with mother, father with child, child with father, brother with sister, brother with brother, friend with friend. <laughs> that uh, they tend to be disharmonious with each other. So how rare it is to cherish it when it isn't. Cherish it when it isn't disharmonious. I guess.
0: Just almost 2.15, so maybe we'll call it a wrap. And, and uh, I should have said at the beginning, uh, speaking of the answer that Lingpa gave to Linda about dedicating merit for one's parents, this is the seventh anniversary of my mother's passing today, so dedicate the merit from this uh, afternoon uh, for her benefit wherever she is.